Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Once thought to be largely eradicated, exorcism is on the rise around the world and has been endorsed by Pope Francis as a method for combating the devil. Today's topic is exorcism practice. We give a historical tour of the practice dating back to the earliest biblical mentions, through the Reformation, and into 2019. We also discuss the insight into the practices of exorcism in the Pentecostal and Catholic churches. Today's guests are the research team of Dr. Kate Kingsbury from the University of Alberta and Dr. Andrew Chestnut from Virginia Commonwealth University. Dr. Chestnut is a return guest, having appeared on episode 102 to discuss the folk saint, Santa Muerte. Dr. Kingsbury and Dr. Chestnut are a prolific research partnership and publish widely and often on trends within Santa Muerte and exorcism. The main focus of today's conversation is their January 2019 cover story from the Catholic Herald entitled, Driving Out the Devil, What's Behind the Exorcism Boom? This episode is a look at the global landscape of exorcism practice. As always, if you like this show, you can follow me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas, on Facebook at facebook.com slash classical ideas podcast, or you can support the show financially at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. You can find today's guests actively engaged on Twitter as well at Andrew Chestnut One and at Prof Kingsbury. You can find those links in the show notes, as well as a collection of co-authored articles around today's topic of exorcism. Without further delay, please enjoy this conversation on exorcism with Dr. Kate Kingsbury and Dr. Andrew Chestnut. Welcome to Classical Ideas. I'm here today with my two guests, Dr. Kate Kingsbury and Dr. Andrew Chestnut. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here on the show today. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us, Greg. Good to be back. So, Kate, I wonder if we could start off with you. Um, if you can do a brief introduction of yourself as a scholar and a professional, what it is that you focus on, and just kind of give the audience a sense of what you do. My name is Dr. Kate Kingsbury. Um, I'm an Oxford University-trained anthropologist. Um, I specialize during my time at Oxford looking at the anthropology of religion, also looking at gender in relationship to that and politics. But I've always had uh, a very deep interest in religion uh, across the world. Specifically, I was initially looking at religion in, in Africa, but I've expanded um, my domain since then. And currently I work at the University of Alberta and I teach courses such as the Anthropology of Religion, which is actually my most popular course because it's rather exciting. And once in a while I bring in a live witch. Um, you know, like we had a Wiccan priest a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I really believe in, in my approach of religion as an anthropologist very different from a theologist, not so much looking at text and what people say they do, but looking very much in at praxis, what people actually do going out into the field, participating in religious rites, etc. Wonderful. Thank you. Andrew, I know that you were already on episode 102 and many listeners will remember that 
fantastic conversation that we had. Can you just give a very brief refresher of uh, who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm Professor Andrew Chestnut. Uh, I'm at Virginia Commonwealth University, was at University of Houston for 11 years prior, and I specialize in the religions of Latin America. My doctorate is actually in uh, Latin American history from UCLA. And um, for the past 10 years, I have dedicated my research agenda to what is now the fastest growing new religious movement in the entire West, uh, which Dr. Kingsbury is also working on now. And that would be devotion to the Mexican folk saint, uh, Santa Muerte. Um, I also hold a chair in Catholic studies here at Virginia Commonwealth University. And that ties in, of course, to our conversation today on surging exorcism across the globe. Fantastic. So, Kate, you come from the world of anthropology, and Andrew, you come from the world of religious studies. Andrew, can you just tell me how you found Dr. Kingsbury? How did you two meet? Actually, can I just jump in there and say sure. that I found I found Dr. Chestnut. I was the one who tracked him down. <laughs> oh, I love it. Tell me. Um, as I said, I teach this very popular course, Anthropology of Religion, at the University of Alberta. Um, and I decided to have in my syllabus, because I was shifting my focus from Africa to Latin America, finding that there were so many similarities and overlap and, and finding the religious landscape topography there absolutely fascinating and wanting to learn more and also inform my students uh, about the, the practices over there. So I decided to set one week um, on thanatology, the, the study of death and how you know it links to eschatology, religious beliefs, etc. And I discovered Santa Muerte online, um, just randomly looking at websites. And I thought, well, I need to find uh, a book on this, a chapter on this to set for my students. So I perused my library, and lo and behold, I came up with Dr. Andrew Chestnut's book, Devoted to Death, published by Oxford University Press. And I thought, this looks like a, an amazing book. And I started reading it and thinking, I, I'm sure my students would love the chapter on the black candle, which describes how mm -hmm. drug dealers, um, but also the police and the military use Santa Muerte for protection, uh, also to punish their enemies. And, and I just knew, you know, students just love stuff on sex, drugs and rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps them awake in class. So I thought, oh, I'll definitely set this chapter. But I thought, you know, I want to contact this Dr. Andrew Chestnut. He sounds like an interesting fellow. And perhaps there's further literature because I'd also heard that there was an LGBTQ appeal to Santa Muerte. And I wanted to find uh, an in brevis piece uh, as per that topic. So I contacted Dr. Chestnut and I said, you know, hello, I love your work. Uh, can you ad give me any further advice? I'm setting this for my syllabus this semester. So we engaged in dialogue, and he actually turned out to be a, a half-decent fellow. <laughs> <laughs> and so I ended up inviting him. I applied for funding at the university because he seemed like such an engaging chap that I thought, oh, let's get some funding and have him come down and talk to the students at the U of A. So I did just that. I got the funding. I convinced Dr. Chestnut to come up to one of the coldest places on planet Earth, yes. which is <laughs> in the middle of winter. 
and he came up and enthralled my students, told some excellent jokes, and, and then we just got off on, on a great footing and, and decided that we had a lot academically in common and should definitely be collaborating. Andrew, is there anything you want to add that I have missed out there? Uh, I would add that uh, that we met on Twitter, that you first uh, uh, contacted me on Twitter. And, and I think, Greg, we probably met on Twitter as well. We did, so yes. um, social media ends up being a powerful platform to for us academics and, and those of us who are dedicated to lifelong learning to, to make connections. Awesome. So today, so we talked about Santa Morte a lot um, as before. So today what I w- wanted to bring you two together to talk about is your collaborations that you've recently been doing on exorcism. And so... Um, what I want to know there, is there any interesting backstory for how you both became interested in exorcism, per se, um, and how you first got into the topic? Kate, do you remember when you first found exorcism as a topic of interest? It's always been hovering in the background because, as I said, I'm an anthropologist of religion. So exorcism, since day one, has has always been looming large, and particularly in Africa, where it is so common, not only amongst Christians, but also amongst the Muslim populace. So it was always um, an ever-present sort of background hum that I had not specifically focused my attention, attention entirely on. And then I met Andrew, and we just started chatting about it, and realized him doing his work primarily in Latin America, that there were all these parallels between what I had seen and what he had witnessed and that this was definitely a subject we should be collaborating on. Andrew, what do you think? When did you find exorcism as an area of interest for you? Uh, It actually flowed naturally out of my um, dissertation field research on the Pentecostal boom in Brazil in the early 90s. Um, And we're going to talk about this, I think, as we proceed. But but it really is the Pentecostals who thrust the practice of exorcism center stage globally. So in my research on Pentecostalism in Brazil, which is now home to the largest Pentecostal population on earth, um, in attending the scores of services that I did from 1993, 1994, I, I actually witnessed scores of exorcisms. And so in writing my dissertation, which became my first book, Born Again in Brazil, um, you know, I, I had to address exorcism because it's such an integral part of the meteoric rise of Pentecostalism. So it was it was through the lens of Pentecostalism. Awesome. Okay, so you two have a piece out in the Catholic Herald called Driving Out the Devil, What's Behind the Exorcism Boom? And this is the piece that I want to go into in some pretty thorough detail. But I love this piece. Um, but you can I know you have a huge series that you've collaborated on about exorcism together. So feel free to refer to your many other pieces when examples are relevant. Um, So most people, when they think of exorcism, they think of the 1973 William Friedkin film, The Exorcist. So I'm hoping to talk a little bit about the history and kind of set the record straight for what's going on. What are some of the earliest recorded mentions of exorcism as a Catholic practice in the historical record. Kate, can you take us way back in time to when this first shows up in the record? Absolutely. So we find uh, the first references to exorcism in the New Testament, and we're talking here about 120 AD, that sort of time 
period, not so much in the Old Testament where we are seeing a lot of references to demons. In the New Testament, you know, we really witness how, and I think this is absolutely fascinating, when we look at the very earliest stages of Christianity, we have to remember that Jesus was a sort of, is painted as a shamanic figure who was going around performing services that, that shamans uh, typically carried out. That is healing illnesses, performing uh, miracles, working through visions. And of course, in the New Testament, we see that he is referred to as conducting um, exorcisms on the sick, healing people of illness. And we see that the victims of possession in these cases are never held responsible for their situation. And this is something that will be a continuous thread as we look today at, at exorcism and, you know, the vestiges of the past are still there. Um, unlike today, you know, we don't have so much reference to that animals could even be possessed. If we look at Matthew 8, uh, 30, uh, there's a description of pigs being possessed by uh, demons, which I think is absolutely fascinating. And people can also be possessed by multiple uh, demons. Uh, there's a passage in Luke 8.30 where a man is described as being possessed by a legion of demons. And a legion is typically a unit of about 6,000 uh, soldiers. Also back then, we see that demons could grant special powers to people. So there's a passage, for example, where a woman is given uh, prescient power to foretell the future uh, thanks to an indwelling uh, evil spirit. But generally, demons tend to harm people. They tend to cause illnesses, various disorders, which if we say, look at Luke, um, sound like epilepsy, um, being mute. There's all sorts of different um, examples of, of ailments being caused by by demons. Um, also, demonic speech, which again, if we look at exorcism today, demonic speech, people being able to speak uh, strange languages, etc., is is an ongoing theme. So. We see that in the New Testament, we see that exorcisms were mainly being performed by Jesus or an apostle. And this is when, again, as I said, it's very interesting because we're going to see as we delve into the history of exorcism, that at the early stages of Christianity, there was very much an intermeshing of magic and religion, which were uh, admixed at that point and, and indistinguishable for lay people at that time. But later on, as I said, as we'll explore, this becomes during the Protestant Reformation a big goal to, to try and extract the magic from religion. So I hope that answers your question. We can go into that further. But as I, I just want to point out that exorcism was at the fulcrum of Christianity at the earliest times. And over time, we will see it change and miracles will be performed in different ways. But at the earliest times in the New Testament, etc., when we look at the writings of Tertullian, of Justin the Martyr in 160 AD, 120 AD, uh, around that time period, exorcism was very much at the forefront. And one last thing I want to mention 
that we're also seeing today and very much in Brazil, and I'm sure that Andrew can, can speak on that topic later, exorcism was not only about uh, expunging people of illness and evil, it was also at that time about um, ridding people or ridding the, the, the landscape, the religious landscape, as it were, of competing beliefs. So we see that during the Greco-Roman period um, that people like Tertullian um, and, and Justin at a later point claimed that the Greeks were possessed by demons, referring to their mythology and their gods as demons and using that as an excuse to propagate the Christian faith and try and extend that religious topography of those Greek gods. Wow. Andrew, do you have any um, follow-up on that as far as like favorite stories and sources that show up in the record that really jump out at you as being really memorable? Uh, well, going back to the, the Brazilian case and, and, and what Kate was saying about um, the competition and expelling spirits and demons of the competition, in, in the Brazilian case, uh, specific exorcism usually involves deliverance from the orishas or the spirits of the Afro-Brazilian religions of candomblé and Umbanda. And so one of the most popular Pentecostal churches, which really kind of thrust uh, the practice of exorcism to the fore in the 1970s, the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, actually reserves every Friday night for, for deliverance services or, or exorcism services in which the eschews are the liminal trickster spirits of Umbanda and Candomblé are actually kind of invoked to then be kind of expelled en masse by these combative preachers who go around the congregation with a microphone trying to, to, to do literal interviews with a demon to figure out which particular eschew or trickster spirit is, per, is possessing that particular congregant. Um, so, so, and, and, and again, this couldn't be a more literal demonization in this context of a very vibrant uh, competition between Pentecostal churches, Catholicism on one hand, and, and these Afro-Brazilian religions as well. And so it's, it's just kind of interesting that, that in Brazil, in Latin America, and Africa, the, the de so-called demons tend to be in, you know, either indigenous or African related spirits that, that as Kate was pointing out, are, are Satanized uh, in a Christian context. Interesting. Okay. So Andrew, um, something that I really like that both of you, that your articles do is it tells us about exorcism today. And what I'm curious about is how the rate acceptance and prevalence of exorcism around the world has changed in the last maybe 50 or 60 years. What has gone on from the 60s until today that um, has made exorcism rise so much? Well, I would like to sort of roll back the clock there slightly because I think we need to go, I think to give your listeners a full picture of what's going on, 
we need to go back to where we were before. So we were looking at the earliest advent of, of exorcism. And if we want to go to the recrudescence, we kind of need to, to look at the historical trajectory. And I'm sure Andrew will jump in at the 60s, 70s period. So as I said, initially, exorcism was ultra popular in the Catholic faith. Um, and it wasn't the purview of anybody in particular. You just had to be a holy individual. And, you know, there was no legality attached to that. Anybody could pretty much carry out uh, an exorcism. Then we look at the medieval ages where exorcism becomes indirect. More frequently, we're using exercised objects, salt oil, water were used by people to exercise people. Later, uh, the holiness of saints, their shrines, etc., become accepted as the new miracle workers. Then as the Middle Ages roll in, exorcism starts to sort of peter out slightly, um, but it's really during the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation when we see people like Luther coming to the fore, and as I said, these magico-religious practices being expunged because Luther absolutely thought that there was way too much superstition, uh, magic, witchcraft going on uh, in the Catholic faith, and therefore he sought to eradicate that. And then we have the Reformation where there's all these, these splits and schisms between the Catholics and, and the Protestants and all these internal divides. And as a result, exorcism really starts to diminish dramatically uh, because the church has to establish, the Catholic church has to establish legal precedents for doing exorcisms, uh, has to justify why these are going on. And then, you know, as we see the advent of the so-called age of reason, uh, whether scientific advancements, rationalism, skepticism, we have a secular state. Exorcism, exorcism really comes under attack. And, you know, we have people like Blaise Pascal, who was a, a Catholic intellectual, um, but very uh, fideistic and, and open to science. These people begin to really propagate a negative view of exorcism. And also with the rise later of modern medicine, uh, neurology, psychology, all these ailments like epilepsy, uh, psychological issues get reclassified as medical problems that doctors can deal with. So we see quite dramatically how exorcism almost appears to be completely wiped off the record. But then, uh, as Andrew has documented, and I'm sure he'll speak to this very shortly, we have this momentous recrudescence with the advent of the Pentecostal faith. Andrew, do you want to jump in there? Right, right. So so even Pentecostalism is, is born here in the States, 1905, 1906, and then is quickly exported to Latin America within a few years. But, but even in the first decades uh, within the Pentecostal church, exorcism was, was very much kind of practiced in the shadows. It's not until, it's not until the decade of the 1970s when it starts to migrate to front and center. And, and again, you know, one of the most important agents, particularly in the global south, is this controversial Brazilian neo-Pentecostal church, the Universal Church of the Kingdom of God, who, again, to the point 
now has Friday services, which are completely dedicated to deliverance from demons. Um, I think that that exorcism, you know, in the Pentecostal context, it's just it's just so much easier because unlike in the Catholic Church, where if a priest is to perform one, he needs the Episcopal, the consent of his bishop. Uh, within the Pentecostal world, pretty much any person, uh, even if they're not an ordained pastor, uh, who believes that he has this gift of being able to deliver uh, demon-possessed folks uh, from, their, from the spirits, uh, is, is able to perform an exorcism. And so this makes it much easier for, for Pentecostal exorcisms to be, be, be performed you know, on, on, on very large scales as they are today. So, so it's really kind of the, the metamorphosis of what had been a very much a marginal practice in the Pentecostal context to being thrust front and center in Latin America, particularly in the 1970s, and then, then Africans embrace the practice as well. That, that leads leads to the current boom that we have. Um, it, Catholic Church gets a lot more media attention. Of course, we have the, the Exorcist, which is kind of a pivotal cultural moment in the 1970s, which kind of reintroduces exorcism on the landscape, particularly of, of Western culture. But, but it really is the Pentecostalization of Christianity particularly in the global South, most importantly in our two regions of, of specialization, Latin America and Africa, that is the, is the motor that really has been driving this boom. Um, and and if, if Catholicism has responded and ratcheted up exorcism, it's due to pressure and competition with, uh, with Pentecostalism. So, Andrew, I'm curious if you can say where in the world exorcisms are mostly occurring. You keep saying Global South. Are there, like, particular places that are this is happening, like, frequently? Uh, yeah, it's, 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 you know, mostly wherever you have large Christian populations, which, which are mostly going to be uh, Pentecostal. Um, in most of the Global South, the Philippines, Africa, and Latin America— the leading form of Catholicism is called the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, which is essentially the church's brand or form of Pente Pentecostalism. And they really are the ones who are most um, gung-ho on the practice of exorcism. And, and they're really the ones who've been responsible for, for the Catholic boom, I would say, as well. Um, to the point that, that, that in Brazil, for example, within the context of the Catholic charismatic renewal at these uh, prayer circles that they have, which are, are the great majority of those who attend are women, um, we actually have women, female lay leaders um, practicing unauthorized exorcisms behind closed doors. So it, it's probably the case that, that you know, a, a large measure of the Catholic exorcisms today, particularly in the global South, are practiced by women, obviously without uh, Episcopal consent. Kate, what are you noticing uh, whenever you look at Africa as far as um, the trends of exorcism? Well, I want to speak to the bigger picture here and, and look more at the atavistic 
origins um, of this of this whole um, phenomena. And, and I want to mention that, you know, though Pentecostalism grew out of this 18th century Anglo-American revival movement known as the Great Awakening, which emphasized uh, this desire to be born again. We've all heard about, you know, being born again. And it had this emphasis on the Holy Spirit, etc. And as Andrew mentioned, a small part of that was exorcism. The reason why this Pentecostal faith absolutely mushroomed when it hit Africa and when it hit Latin America and why exorcism came to the fore and why we saw this massive recrudescence of exorcism was because in the global south, in Africa, in Latin America, in a way, this was nothing new. We're talking about a religious landscape where endemic to those regions were notions of uh, the landscape, people being haunted by spirits. And people had worked with spirits since antediluvian times, since time immemorial. You know, we even have shamanic paintings that date back to 10,000, sometimes even 20,000 years ago, where we can see in the depictions, we assume that these are depictions of people working with spirits, being possessed perhaps by animal spirits. And there are two different sides here, I should mention, of this coin, but which are ultimately the same coin. We have exorcism, where people traditionally in pre-Christian times were working uh, to expunge, to exaflate spirits because they believed that they caused perhaps illness or evil. But then also we see, and this is still very much alive in traditions like Umbanda in voodoo and in, in many other African religions and Afro-Caribbean religions, um, Latin American religions, where people practice adoricism, where instead of trying to expunge the spirit, you're embracing the spirit and offering it um, gifts, ablations. Uh, you want it to come into your body so that you can uh, reap the supernatural services, acquire perhaps particular powers thanks to that spirit. So I think that the reason why uh, exorcism spoke so much to the people of the global south in Africa, as you asked me about, and in Latin America, was because these were ideas that were already endemic within that landscape, that these were part of the metaphysics uh, of that world. Uh, they were cosmologically familiar for people. So in Africa today, we're seeing uh, something very similar to what Andrew mentioned in Brazil, which is where in a lot of places, Pentecostalism has become hugely popular. Also, uh, the Catholic charismatic renewal um, in Cameroon and in other places is hugely popular because of exorcism. And in parallel to places like Brazil, people are often expunging, exaflating that the priests, the pastors are exaflating uh, indigenous African spirits who people once turned to for supernatural favors like Mami Wata, who is this water spirit, a female mermaid-like figure that people used to turn to, especially people living on the coastline or near uh, large bodies of water, lakes, etc. So they used to turn to this aquatic spirit for favors, perhaps fishermen going out on the high seas, etc. But now the Christian church, according to this satanic 
uh, lexicon that they use and which we saw, which I mentioned, since time immemorial, this was used previously to decry uh, the Greco-Roman gods, now is being used in Brazil and in Africa, as I've seen, to uh, lambast local spirits. And if someone, say, is possessed, people will often, or the pastor claims that they're possessed, people will often blame it on a local indigenous spirit like Mami Water. And this is a way of getting rid of the competition mm. as well. Right. Actually, actually, in the Pentecostal lexicon, they actually call this spiritual warfare. And, uh, and it has gotten so aggressive lately in Brazil that sometimes Pentecostals will go and raid a Umbanda house of worship and desecrate it and sometimes even hold some of the devotees they find there hostage. Oh my gosh. Let, let, b- bouncing off um, what Kate was saying in, in terms of um, spiritual possession being endemic part of the religious landscape, I think you know one, one could make a very strong argument that the very birth of Pentecostalism here in the United States, that, that it really is birthed essentially from African-American religiosity. Um, a lot of the protagonists in uh, the, the, the birth of Pentecostalism here in 1905-1906 are, are African-American preachers. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there's this, there's this resonance with African spirituality that is kind of reconfigured, recalibrated in the very birth of Pentecostalism. And I would argue that that, that, that's why it has found even greater traction in Africa and in Latin America, particularly populations in Latin America where you have people of, of African descent than it has here in the United States. Pentecostalism has thrived, but not to the point that it has in Africa and Latin America. Absolutely. And William Seymour, who is, you know, so Charles um, Fox Parham founded the Pentecostal faith, but he was not the one that popularized it uh, in the 18th century. The fellow that popularized it was William Seymour, who, as Andrew points out, he was actually an African-American who moved to Los Angeles, and there he opened up this ministry in an abandoned African Methodist church on Azusa Street. And that's when the Pentecostal faith exploded, and his services were all about spiritual warfare, demonic forces versus the power of the Holy Spirit. And he drew in thousands, especially amongst the poor and disadvantaged uh, African-American populace. And in fact, the church was so popular that pastors from far and wide visited this church and began preaching um, the Pentecostal faith. And not only uh, in the U.S. South, that's when they started sending out these missionaries uh, across the global ecumen to to Europe, Africa and Latin America. And in the two latter places, that's where the whole movement takes off. So, Kate, something that's jumping out at me, I'm thinking about our emails over the past couple of weeks as we've been leading up to our discussion today. And you mentioned several times in your letters to me, women and exorcism. And as I'm reading through these articles that you and Andrew have written, women seem to make up a large number of the exercised and those who are having family members exercised. Is this correct? What is the reason for this? There are many different theories, and it really depends which school you ascribe to. Um, 
so in some literature it's propounded that you know women especially in disadvantaged societies where they do not have a voice and are not able to speak for themselves on a day-to-day basis and make demands for themselves may in a religious context use um, exorcism um, to make claims for themselves, to make demands uh, or perhaps to try and uh, ask family members to do particular things for them. I mean, if we look at at an an African mode, uh, pre-Christian mode of exorcism called the Tsar movement in Eastern Africa, uh, which is particularly prevalent in Somalia, women have, you know, typically had a very tough lot. They struggle to feed their children. Um, They struggle with the strains of polygyny where men can have multiple wives. And they often have women-only Tsar trances where women become possessed by spirits. Now, this is not exorcism. This is adoricism. But women become possessed by very demanding spirits. And those spirits will make demands on husbands. And they'll say, oh, you have to throw me a party or you have to buy me a new pair of shoes or I'm going to reap evil. This spirit's going to reap evil uh, around the village. So we have cases like this. And I think that Andrew has seen similar um, things in Brazil where women are using Um, contact with spirits to make demands for themselves in societies which are are heavily patriarchal. Also, it can hold the family together. If we look at functionalist theories, what is the function of exorcism? If, say, there's a wayward husband or a misbehaving son or daughter, this is a way to bring them back into the family fold Uh, to exonerate them from their bad behavior and to bring that family member into the church and perhaps say, you know, it's not your fault that you were gambling all the money away. Mm -hmm. It's It's the devil's fault. He took a hold of you. Now we're going to expunge this devil from your your soul from your body and, and all will be well again so this can also be a way for families to to bond together and for women to bring uh, the focus back onto the importance of the household uh, as a strong unit and perhaps andrew you can tell us about uh, women in brazil as well making claims um, um because of exorcism yeah, maybe maybe I'll follow up with with a counterpoint here that there's also I think you know going back to this patriarchal idea that women are more susceptible to demonic attack. You know, going back to to, to Eve, of course, being the one who ate the forbidden fruit, and so I, I think you know part of patriarchal societal beliefs is that women are just on the front lines and more susceptible to to demonic attack. Um, but it's also the case, I think, I think at least in Latin America, it's hard to parse this out because at, at any, any given church service, 70 to 80% of the worshipers are female anyway. So it's, it's not necessarily the case that we are seeing a disproportionate number of women being possessed compared to those women who are actually are in, in attendance, who, who t- again, usually is more than two thirds uh, at any given Catholic, Catholic mass or Pentecostal service as well. But yeah, I, 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 think, I, think, I think the kind of 
uh, aspect of female empowerment isn't doesn't lie so much in exorcism per se. I, I think it's more in in the other so-called charismata or gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, and particularly prophecy. I've seen Pentecostal women <laughs> use prophecy all the time to call out bad behavior uh, on the part of their husbands or perhaps even the pastor himself. <laughs> so, so I think some of these other gifts of the Holy Spirit lend themselves um, to a greater extent to, to this, this female empowerment that, that does take place within the Pentecostal context, more so than exorcism itself. And, and we have to remember that almost all the, all the exorcisms taking place are being performed by male pastors and priests. Okay, so there's only there's two more things that I want to know about um, that we can kind of move through, and those two things are how an exorcism is done, and then I want to end on talking a little bit about the role of the current pope. So I'm curious about the method of an actual exorcism because I don't really know what happens, but I do know from your articles that Pentecostal exorcism and Catholic exorcism might look a little bit different. So Kate... I'm wondering if you can describe what we might see if we were to see a Pentecostal exorcism in person. Well, Pentecostal exorcisms are generally much more dramatic, I'd say much more creative, and, and have much more of a plethora, of a variety of um, different practices that, that people may choose to practice. Because unlike, as I'm sure Andrew will speak to, the Catholic faith where there is very uh, very specific modus operandi with the pentecostal faith pretty much anybody as andrew mentioned earlier can perform an exorcism and they may choose to go about this in a variety of ways uh, often it usually takes place during a service where in public before a large congregation the pastor or the person performing the exorcism will uh, cry out um, and claim that there are evil spirits present and you know, people in the congregation uh, who claim to be possessed may start shaking, shivering, uh, speaking in tongues, glossolalia, all sorts of things may go on. They may start speaking in strange demonic speech, all sorts of things may happen on that level, which to a Western eye may appear quite hysterical, but as an anthropologist, I see that this is part of the long durée, part of the continuity of traditions where you know people across Africa have for a long time, as I pointed out earlier, um, undergone trance in different modes of ecstatic um, embodiment of, of spirits, good or evil. So this typically takes place and then a pastor will attempt to battle that evil spirit and things can get very dramatic. Uh, you know, it may also be, almost look like a, a boxing match. Uh, um, a cage fighting, right? <laughs> a cage fighting between the, the spirit, the evil spirit and the pastor who will often use the Holy Spirit to strike out, uh, strike out that evil spirit. And, you know, we, we're seeing such variation that recently I saw in the press that this uh, priest in Zimbabwe was supposedly snogging, kissing a young worshipper <laughs> on the mouth to rid her of demons, claiming that he was sucking them out of her mouth. Uh, so, Well, that would be the demon succubus, right? <laughs> 
So we see a, a wide variety of, of different ways of, of striking out the devil. Uh, usually there's, there's a, a rhetoric as well, uh, a sort of loose script that might consist of out, out, dirty devil, in the name of the Holy Spirit, I cast you out. So they make it very exciting. And I think that's also why exorcism has really risen in popularity, because watching this, I mean, you can Google this on YouTube. One of the best ones that I recommend to watch is a church in Nigeria called Skoan, Synagogue Church of All Nations where there is this very famous pastor who holds exorcisms on a weekly basis, often 20,000 people come, and specific congregants will, will come to the fore uh, of the church and claim to be possessed. And if you watch these, these rites, they're extremely dramatic. People generally start writhing around on the floor, speaking in really strange voices, and then he will publicly ask them all about the demon. Who is it? It might be a water spirit. What are they doing to that person's life? And then once he's gathered all that information, then he will conjure up the Holy Spirit and, and use it in very dramatic fashion to strike out the devil. Andrew, how does that contrast from Catholics? The Catholic ones tend to be much more formal. There's actually an uh, exorcism manual um, that was updated in 1999. And so there are prescribed prayers such as uh, our Lord's Prayer, Hail Mary, um, certain scriptural passages are read. Um, if it seems to be a particularly violent possession, um, you'll usually have a cadre of, of a team of assistants helping out the exorcist and, and the person possessed might actually be physically restrained. Um, and um, sometimes we have spiritual conductors that are used such as, uh, such as a crucifix, of course, um, holy water. And um, it tends to be uh, much more low keyed and uh, and much less dramatic dramatic than what Kate was describing for the uh, Pentecostal context. And let me also add that in great contrast to Pentecostal exorcisms, um, priests who are approached by those who are possibly demon possessed uh, are encouraged to tell them first to seek medical and psychological attention. Um, uh, to rule out any kind of, you know, medical issue or, or psychological issues. Um, so, so that's kind of standard practice within the kind confines of the church that we don't necessarily see with Pentecostals. But um, before before I kind of typecast uh, Catholic exorcism, let me go back and remind you that we have a lot of these informal, unsanctioned exorcisms taking place. Um, within the context of the Catholic charismatic renewal in Brazil and other countries in the global south. And so that would be much more along the same lines of, of Pentecostal exorcism. So the last thing I'm curious about is you two collaborated on an article last year called Pope Francis Endorses Exorcism as Tool for Combating the Devil. Um, 
Has the papacy of Francis caused a shift in the way exorcism is discussed around the world? Um, either one of you can respond to this. Um, it's not really directed at anybody in particular. Uh, yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, as a Latin American Catholic, as our first Latin American pope, um, Latin American Christians, both Pentecostal and, and Catholics, um, really believe in a literal devil who sows death and destruction in our world. And so a week does not go by. Kate and I talk about this all the time. In fact, we need to, to pen another Pathios post on this. A week does not go by in which Pope Francis doesn't, doesn't mention the devil. Um, so he believes in this real literal devil. And under his watch, we have continued to see exorcism surge um, I think I'll pass the baton to Kate here and talk about a really interesting Vatican conference that, that took place on exorcism last April. Yeah, so Pope Francis has no sympathy for the devil. <laughs> um, <laughs> and last April, this time last year, the Vatican, and I'm sure we'll see another similar event, actually organized an exorcism workshop in Rome where the two, more than 250 priests from 51 countries coalesced together uh, to learn about the latest techniques to exercise demonic spirits. Now, obviously, as Andrew mentioned earlier, uh, Catholic exorcism is a lot more formalized than Protestant exorcism. And it's so ironic because it is so formalized because of this, which I mentioned earlier, this historical events of the Reformation and the need to formalize things because the Protestants were accusing the Catholics of being very superstitious. But now we've sort of seen the whole thing turn on its head because now it's the Protestants who are performing way more uh, informal exorcisms. But anyway, that aside, the Catholic Church organized this workshop to train priests uh, in the art of exorcism. And the first thing that they have to do, as Andrew mentioned, is make sure that this is not a psychological, uh, neurological issue. And there are all these questions that they are trained to ask to identify whether people are actually possessed. And then they are taught how to use holy water, the Bible, the crucifix to drive out the demons. But also in keeping with the global technological zeitgeist, um, the church now has a new addition to their spiritual paraphernalia, and that is the mobile phone. Mm. And also doing exorcisms via Skype because, you know, it's not only God that has to be omnipotent and omnipresent. His clergy need to be omnipresent and be able to use virtual technologies to deliver people from demons. Incredible. Okay. Um, well, this has been really an amazing conversation. You two are such a dynamic um scholarship pair. Um, you're, you have so many articles, and I'm going to be attaching links to your entire series on exorcism in all of the show notes for this episode. Um, you're doing incredible work, and I'm so glad that you two found each other. And Kate, I'm so glad that you reached out to Andrew um, a few years back because the work that you two are doing together 
is truly incredible. Um, and so, I just want yeah. to intercede there and say that we're also planning new work on Santa Muerte, who, as I mentioned, I've become very interested in. And perhaps if your listeners enjoyed this, there will be work coming out on Santa Muerte that we're doing specifically on female devotees of Santa Muerte, which is something that they might enjoy learning more about. Hey, right. And let me add, we didn't get to touch on this, but one of the latest spirits to be exercised in both Mexico and uh, and here in Texas is the spirit is of Santa Muerte. Santa yeah. Muerte. Exactly. And so, you know, as as kind of a tool of combating this this surging devotion to this heretical folk saint, we see both Catholic priests and evangelical pastors exercising folks from the demonic and quote spirit of Santa Muerte. Oh who my is goodness. regularly being decried by the Catholic Church as a demonic force, as a heretical folk saint who will bring Satanism on people who practice uh, Santa Muerte faith. My goodness. Okay, so tell everybody, um, Kate, maybe you can go first. Maybe tell people where they can find your work, where they can support your work, how they can find you too, and follow this incredible scholarship that you are doing. Well, I'll direct them firstly to Andrew. Why don't you speak about that? Your Patheos, your Global Catholic Review site. That's the first place that I would suggest, Andrew. Right, right. I have a column on Patheos called the Global Catholic Review. Um, have had it for about a year after six years as a HuffPost columnist and uh, usually put out a, a weekly article and, and many of them I've co-authored co-authored with Kate. In fact, uh, we have several there on exorcism, Santa Muerte as well. So um, I think that's one of the, the best sources to find us. The second place I would recommend is academia.edu, uh, which is uh, more of an academic website. And if you search our names, either Andrew Chestnut, and that's written without a T, people often confuse him <laughs> for he's not, he's lost there somehow. Or my name, Kate Kingsbury, which again is not a fruit. That's not B-E-R-R-Y. It's actually bury as in bury in the ground, bury the king. Uh, so if you search for my name there, Kate Kingsbury or Andrew Chestnut, you'll find uh, a whole host of collaborative pieces. Well, I am super grateful to both of you for your time today and this entire series of articles that you've written. Um, whenever I read your article, Driving Out the Devil, What's Behind the Exorcism Boom, I knew that I had to have you both on the show to talk about this phenomenon. So I am really grateful to both of you for your time, and thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas to talk about exorcism. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. And I'll mention on Pathios, there are a couple of other pieces like Exercising the Demons of Africa, uh, which your listeners might be interested in. Thanks, thank, thanks so much for having us, Greg. Uh, fantastic questions. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. 
or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.